Thank you, Alison, for reading for us. And thank you, Phil, for leading us through the first half of the service, and to Sam and Clive for your prayers. And good morning, friends. It's, it's great to see you this morning, especially I know there's some family and visitors this morning and friends. It's great to have you with us, and we hope you enjoy your time with us this morning. On a cold day in November 2019, a group of us met here in the building armed with mops and cloths and brushes. We were here to give the church a deep clean ahead of our first service. And as you can imagine, there were many cleaning tasks that day right across the building, both upstairs and downstairs. But when we arrived, we found that one of the tasks had already been taken, the cleaning of the toilets. One kind volunteer had quickly grabbed that task and was already working away at it downstairs. It got me thinking, why? You know, I was suddenly struck and I was thinking, why had they jumped at that undesirable task and they were, they were going at it? And then as I thought about it that day, I began to realize it's because that person understands the gospel. They understand that the gospel leads to humility, and humility leads to service. The gospel leads to humility, and humility leads to service. This term, we've been working our way through the book of Philippians, and today is the fourth talk in that series. Paul knows that the best way for them to keep going is to remain united and to work together in partnership for the gospel. Humility is an important thing in unity, and so Paul calls on them to have that same mindset of Christ, of putting others first. We saw that Paul calls them to be humble in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 from last week. And that great song of 5 to 11 that Phil mentioned as well just now, about how Jesus was the ultimate example of humility and service for others. That same, the that same theme of humility and service flows into today's passage. And so as an overview, there are four big ideas that we're going to be looking at, and they'll come up on the screen. Work out, don't grumble, shine, and serve. And we're going to spend most of our time on that first one, work out. Our first section then is verses 12 to 18, which is all about sanctification. Sanctification might sound like a big term, but it just means your spiritual progress from when you first become a believer until the end of your life. It's just a time frame that describes your spiritual progress. If you're not a believer, this little passage doesn't apply to you because it is clearly addressed to believers. But I hope you'll be intrigued enough to listen. And if you have any questions, please do feel free to speak to me or to Sam or one of the staff team or the person that you might have come with today. I know that we'd all be really happy to, to discuss it with you. And as you can see on the second slide, 
there are three stages of the Christian life. And it's important that we remember the differences between these three. In the past, we were justified at our conversion. That means having a right standing with God. In the present, we are being sanctified. This is an ongoing process and means becoming more and more like Christ each day. And in the future, we will be glorified. That will be in the new creation when we will be with God and enjoy his presence forever. So today we're going to be focusing on that middle one, sanctification. In verse 12, Paul says that the Philippians must work out their salvation. I want to focus on this because it's sometimes misunderstood. It's important to understand that Paul is not saying that you can earn your salvation through doing good works. So, uh, scripture is clear on that. And even in the next chapter, chapter 3, Paul emphasizes that point again. Salvation is not based on your merits and efforts. Salvation is not like a salary, which you sort of earn through the month, and then you get paid at the end of the month because you've earned it. Salvation is altogether different. It is based on a gift you receive, not something that you earn. So the salvation described here in verse 12 is about something that you already have. Just look at the wording there in verse 12. You'll see it is not work for your salvation, but rather work out your salvation. Your justification was in the past, but now in the present you are living out your life in Christ. This working out theme has been likened to going to the gym. And we often use that very term. You might say, this afternoon, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to be working out. And just imagine you're there on the cross trainer or doing weights, and you're making an effort, and you're puffing away. Well, Pete Bird wouldn't be puffing away, <laughs> but the rest of us would be. <laughs> Jokes aside, you are literally there working out at the gym, and you're exercising your body. In the same way, when we are working out in the spiritual life, it means exercising or expressing something that is already ours. And so I hope you can see that it doesn't make sense to receive the gift of the gospel and to become a Christian and then just stop and do nothing about it. Rather, as Colin helpfully explained last week, we are to behave in a way that is consistent with our new citizenship. With the Spirit's help, we are to be worthy citizens and try to follow God earnestly and fight the sin in our lives. I'm not saying that this is easy, and it does require sweat and effort on our side, just like it does when we go to the gym. But this means that there is no such thing as cheap grace, and we are called to follow and obey God as best we can. And that's why there's a warning here in verse 12, that we are to live before God with fear and trembling. We're to have a reverent awe and respect for him because he is our creator and Lord and judge as well as our Savior. He requires our obedience 
And so hopefully you'll agree with me that we need to take responsibility for our spiritual lives. But the encouraging thing is that God doesn't leave us to do this alone. You may have spotted in verse 13 that this spiritual progress is all possible because God is working in you. He is actively working in you and shaping your mind and deeds. This is the key to spiritual growth that I think I often tend to forget, that God is working in me. God's Spirit is living in our hearts, and we need to remember the huge part of, his spirit, of our spiritual progress that he plays. Remember how Jesus encouraged his disciples by saying that he will soon be leaving them, but they will not be left alone. And that's because he promised them the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would live in them and who would help them. And the same applies to us too. God's Spirit lives and works in our lives, and He is literally helping us each day. Romans 8 is a parallel passage which describes how the Spirit helps us in our daily lives, but it also describes how we need to take responsibility too. So it's a dual effort being described here. It's the empowering of the Spirit that enables us to act. We can't do it on our own, but with God's help, we can. Ours is the responsibility, but He gives us the power each day. God enables us to do the work, but He does not do the work for us. This can all be summarized in what Jerry Bridges calls the two Ds, dependent discipline. Dependent discipline can be illustrated if we think of a farmer cultivating his crops. He tills the soil, fertilizes it, waters it, and sows the seed. But the miracle of life and growth is not his. That is supplied by God. No matter how much work the farmer does, he is dependent on the growth supplied by the miracle of life from God. And so it is with our spiritual lives. We act, but God gives the growth. Let's pause for a moment and think, where do we naturally find ourselves? Do we find our, our default thinking is that our spiritual progress all depends on us and our discipline? I think that's often my thinking. And this passage has a good corrective for me and maybe for you too. It reminds us that we need to be more humble and dependent on God's work in our lives. Dependence is not easy, and I think that pride often gets in the way here, especially among us men. We like to think that we're independent, and with a bit of effort we can go and get whatever it is that we're chasing. But the reminder here is that we are dependent on God's help. We need his empowering and refreshing grace each day. We need the Spirit's help in our lives. Our spiritual progress is dependent on him. So why not ask God for his help with us today? 
we could reread passages like this one and Romans 8. And I'm sure we'll be refreshed as we're reminded about how God's Spirit gives us strength and, and grace each day. On the other hand, the other common tendency is the opposite of that. It's where we don't feel like we need to take any responsibility for our spiritual life. It's where we don't go to home group or we don't go to prayer meetings or feel like uh, we need to read the Bible. We, we just think that we're a Christian and we're sorted. But if we're honest and we look back five years, have we grown spiritually over that time? Or are we simply coasting along and ticking the box on Sundays? If we recognize this issue, then there's a warning here too. We need to take responsibility for our spiritual lives. We need to ask God for the discipline to reprioritize and to follow him and to revere him the way that he deserves. Pray that God would help us to live out our faith as we draw closer to him and ask him to help you have a thirst for that spiritual growth. And God promises that he will honor that. He will give us joy and peace as you grow and know him better. So that's the first big idea today. Work out your salvation. We'll now move on to the second idea. Don't grumble. You'll see in verse 14 this command not to grumble or be argumentative. And then the wording in 15 and 16 reflects on the events of the Exodus and what happened in the wilderness. You'll remember that how God rescued his people and then provided and sustained them in the desert. But rather than being grateful for what he had done for them, they grumbled and complained. They looked back to Egypt and they wanted to go back there. Now, we can read their story and see the foolishness and think, we wouldn't be like that. We wouldn't be so silly. But if we're honest, we all struggle with grumbling. In the West, we generally live with the highest standard of living in the history of the world. And yet, we still struggle with grumbling and not being content. We may grumble about many different things, but I think we often grumble because we think that we deserve better. We think we deserve more, and God's good gifts are simply not enough. We often don't realize that grumbling is dangerous because it's so subtle, but over time, it is destructive and it undermines our faith. So instead, we need to be grateful for God's gifts and what he has done for us. We need to live our lives in humility and dependence and in recognition of his grace. A proper understanding of grace and mercy means you recognize there's nothing special about you. You realize you're just like others, a sinner in need of grace. And that's the wonderful gospel message, the wonderful leveling in the gospel. We are all equal 
at the foot of the cross. And so rather than, being, uh, rather than grumbling, we become thankful for God's help as we face each day. We remember the incredible gift of grace and who we are in Christ. And then that leads to living positively for him. Because then we want to serve him, and and not just on Sundays, but every day of our lives. So we are not to grumble, but rather to be humble and to be grateful. So we've looked at how we are to work out our salvation and how we are not to grumble. Now let's look at this third big idea, that we are to shine in verse 15. As children of God, believers are to shine as lights in the world. This is because we live in a fallen world that has been darkened by sin and corruption. Apart from God, we are all just spiritually blind and bumbling around in the dark. We're all spiritually dead apart from him. We have no hope without his grace. But that's why the gospel is such a gift, because he literally regenerates us into new life. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and life in Christ. And so because of that radical change, there must be a difference to our previous life. And please don't don't misunderstand me that this doesn't mean having a forced smile on Sundays, but rather a settled joy and a contentment from knowing and enjoying God. It's something that should radiate out and just bubble up out of us because of who we are in Christ. You are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5. And that's because we are to reflect him, the best light. He is the light of the world, we are to reflect him because of our union and likeness to him. The best man at our wedding was a guy I met at university whose name is Brian. When he was a young boy, uh, Brian's father was tragically killed in an accident in Botswana in the 1980s. And years later, his mother met another man, a lovely Christian man, and they got married. And in that new family unit, this new man formally adopted Brian. And this changed Brian's legal status. Brian Archibald became Brian Marks. His legal status changed as part of that adoption. And it's the same with us. When we are adopted into God's family, our legal status changes. We move from darkness to light. We move from not being part of his family to becoming part of his family and having the privilege of calling him our father. And so because we are part of his family, we are to shine and radiate his grace as described here. So that's the first three big ideas. We'll now close with the last point on service as we see it in the life of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
You see in verses 16 to 18 that Paul says he doesn't mind pouring out his life in service. He's given up his rights and privileges in order that the Philippian church could hear and believe the gospel. And one day, he'll stand shoulder to shoulder with them in real joy, and they will be in God's presence forever. That's the greatest reward for him, and true humility like that puts others first for the sake of the gospel. Now let's turn to Timothy. He'd been with Paul, if you remember, when they founded the church 10 years before. And he's got a proven worth and a good reputation. And Paul wants to send him to them to encourage them in their faith. And Paul also looks forward to Timothy coming back from the Philippian church and telling him their news. In 20 and 21, you can see how Timothy is genuinely concerned about others not himself. He seeks what Jesus seeks, those that are spiritually lost and in need of restored relationship with God. He works to encourage believers and to build them up in Christ. He's proven faithful over the years, and so he's a good and faithful example of humility and service. Finally, Paul talks about his friend Epaphroditus. He was a member of the Philippian church who had brought the monetary gift from them to help Paul in Rome. His journey was around 600 miles, which was a big deal, as you can imagine, in first century. And it could often be quite dangerous, too. He'd fallen ill along the way, but now, thankfully, he's recovered, and so Paul is able to send him back to them with this letter. Again, this recurring theme of humility and service comes through, and we see that he risked his life in the service of the gospel. And so Paul rightly wants to commend him and use him as an example, because again we see humility leads to service. So as we think about these examples of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, it's worth thinking, well, what can we learn about them today? If we were to apply a litmus test to our church, can we honestly say that we are concerned about others here today, like described here? If not, maybe we could be more intentional in this area and try maybe opening up our homes and being more hospitable, or helping serve on Sundays with areas that need more volunteers, like the tech team at the back, or the Sunday program for kids downstairs, or just spending time with people and getting to know them better. And another idea that comes across clearly from Epaphroditus is risk. Could we risk something for the gospel? like he did. You don't need to travel 600 miles, but maybe you could take the risk and invite that neighbor round for a meal. Or maybe you can invite them to church here or to a Christianity Explored course. I know we've all been disappointed and we've been let down by people, but that's the nature of risk. There's always 
an element that is uncertain. And remember, you are sitting here today because someone once took a risk on you and invited you along. Could you invite someone else? So as we conclude, friends, let's draw all these threads together and remind ourselves of the big picture. The gift of grace means there's no place for boasting or feeling more important than others. Rather, there's a great leveling in the gospel, and we are all equal at the foot of the cross. A correct understanding of this results in humility, and humility leads to service. We saw humility and service last week in Jesus' life. And this week we've seen it in Paul's life, in Timothy's life, and Epaphroditus' life. As Christians, we are to put the truth of what we believe into action. And so we're to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And we saw how those lives can be characterized by those two Ds, dependent discipline. We saw that true humility doesn't grumble. And as God works in our lives, he shines his grace to others. So let's remember, the gospel leads to humility. And humility leads to service. Amen.